0: this is the wiser than yesterday podcast your hosts sam harris and nicholas farik digest the most interesting informative and topical books giving you their biggest insights we expose different perspectives and tools to look at the world to make you wiser than yesterday
1: Hello everyone and welcome to the fourth episode of the Wiser Than Yesterday podcast. I'm Nico, I'm joined by my co-host Sam and we just finished reading the book Why Buddhism is True by Robert Wright and in this episode we're going to be reviewing uh, this book, its concepts and what we learned from it. So first big feedback from me is that I absolutely loved the book. It was a very, very big eye-opener and I'm very convinced by its contents. And so, yeah, I'm very excited to, to go more in depth with you, Sam. What did you think of the book?
0: Yeah, I thought it was great. I read it. Uh, interestingly, I was trying to do a, another podcast similar to this one with a friend, and he recommended it to me. So it's funny how I end up on this one instead. But he wasn't actually so bothered about it. But I, I, mean, I read the title, I was like, what? I, I'm not sure. I mean, I kind of like the concepts of Buddhism. So I guess I'll read it and stuff. And I was kind of open to like meditation things. But then it just seemed a little bit like, know, oh, religion. But then I read it and was like, oh my God, this is the best thing ever. And mm-hmm. it, it was, it's the book that I've made the most notes on ever for any book when I first read it. So I was like, yeah, this would be a great book to,
1: to discuss. Mm-hmm. Honestly, if you wouldn't have recommended it to me, I wouldn't have never, I would, like if I see this in a store and I'm like, why Buddhism is true, I would never, never read this. So for me, what the author tries to do, and Sam, feel free to correct me after I'm, I'm, I'm done uh, explaining this, but... It looks at the non-spiritual parts of Buddhism, so more the philosophy of meditation and enlightenment, and uses very rational arguments to, in a almost scientific way, prove that this philosophy um, and, and meditation and so on are actually yeah true. So mm. they, it, it proves why it helps people, why it's so effective, and how it makes you a happier calmer more considerate, better person basically
0: yeah yeah so just the background on the author he's actually an evolutionary psychologist um who has mainly only ever written about like evolution and psychology before and so he never thought he'd be writing a book on buddhism but it was only when he started doing some of it and he found like there was so much as parallels between the two and that's why it's why Buddhism is true because he's like okay this is actually why how our brains evolved and why this is kind of the solution to making you like a happier, more fulfilled person because if it sort of it goes into all of the stupid things that your brain does through evolution and actually it's sort of like the, the solution to all these problems.
1: Mm-hmm. Let's let's go in a bit more into that because for me that was uh, probably the biggest epiphany I had. So what the author, what Robert White says and argues is that through evolution. Natural selection has designed us in such a way that humans are doing everything to make sure their genes go on to the next generation. Mm. So all the feelings we currently have are in some way, shape or form related to our um, drive to make sure that our genes go to the next generation and survive in the global gene pool.
0: Yeah, definitely. As in, I think I, one of my favorite highlights was, like, he says there's no such thing as permanent hap- happiness because it's just not useful. Like, if you only had sex once and you were satisfied for the rest of your life, you wouldn't have many babies. Or if you ate, like, a meal once and you just felt full and, like, content for the rest of your life, you'd just die. So, like, happiness needs to, like, leave quite quickly for you to carry on doing a useful behavior. So, like, your, as a human, default mode is to always stop being happy as soon as you've been happy for a while. So. Mm-hmm things like sort of in the ancient world, like having like a sweet tooth would make you go and search for sugar because there wasn't much of it around. Whereas now you can buy as many Mars bars or Coke as you want all day. And like, that's a problem because if it just messes up your health, because that wasn't an environment that we actually had kind of thing. And it's just Mm -hmm. quite sort of, when you start thinking about it like that, it's like, Oh yeah, this is why like I'm searching for the wrong things a lot of the time.
1: Yeah, exactly. This is a concept that I thoroughly believe in that we as humans have been evolving for hundreds of thousands of years as hunter-gatherers. And only in the past 10,000 years have we become sedentary. Have we started living in uh, very big cities instead of smaller communities? Have we had an abundance of uh, food with a lot of carbohydrates, sugars, etc.? Have we had so much free time, etc.? So the thing is that we've evolved to have the ideal reactions and feelings to survive as a hunter-gatherer. But the thing is that the world has changed since then. But the things that our urges are still those of the hunter-gatherers. And that is one of the main reasons why people are unhappy, uh, why people become addicted to um, sugar, to food, to alcohol, to pornography, uh, is just because these things, they, they're driven by a need that helped us survive uh, 100,000 years ago. But today, that's not the case anymore. But our, our bodies didn't have the chance, chance to change yet. So basically, what the author argues, and I, I fully agree with it, and I hope I can explain this decently, is that we have two natural reactions to everything we encounter. We either um, are drawn towards it, or we are uh, afraid of it, and we try to avoid it. So let's say that's sugar, we are drawn towards sugar, attractive Women, um, large, dangerous, violent animals, that's something that makes us afraid. And so, in a yeah. very basic level, we either have a, a flight response or an approaching response.
0: Which is um, in the same way, it's still always like a wanting. So, it's either I want to be nearer this thing, or I want more of it, or I want to get away from it. So, I want to be in safety, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So, it's mm-hmm. still always like a craving to get to something. Um, mm-hmm you can just kind of flip the way that it's working and which is quite interesting. And so like everything is done on like an emotional level. So like you're purchasing behavior. is like, it's not, you know, analytically think about like how much something costs so much as you think you do. It's much more about like, Oh, do I want this in my life? And like everything is much more emotional than you realize. And you sort of just driven around by your emotions the whole time. rather yeah. than being exactly. like the analytic person that you think you are.
1: Yeah, And even more than emotions, it's feelings, you know, it's all about feelings. Like for okay, me, that's what
0: I meant. Yes, <laughs> feeling is the right word, not emotions.
1: <laughs> yeah, so uh, for me, I'm, I'm in, not in any way, shape or form a meditator. And so I'm fully convinced that I'm fully driven by my feelings. Like I have zero control over my feelings. I've never been able to analyze my feelings and think about them from a distance. So whatever I do, I'm motivated by feelings which are given to me by natural selection. Very basic. Mm. And so the book argues that these feelings, and that's one of the the earliest chapters, are in many cases, illusions. Perhaps you can go a bit more into that part of the book.
0: Yeah, certainly. So if you imagine, like, if I work from home, like, I'll have breaks like every half an hour to go and eat something or drink something just because there's food there the whole time. And it's just sort of, it's just feelings of distraction. And it's not actually a requirement for my body. Whereas if I was sort of sitting above Sam, like thinking about what Sam should be doing, like if I had like a remote control on Sam, I'd be like, oh, Sam doesn't, doesn't need to eat right now. But because I'm just in my head and I'm thinking, oh yeah, they, maybe there's a Mars bar there or maybe I should eat a carrot or whatever. And like, I don't have control of what I'm doing so much as if I actually just thought analytically about what Sam should do with the, to be the most productive for that day. And it's sort of, your head just gets distracted by what's going on around it and its emotion, its feelings rather than like what you actually truly want to be doing Mm -hmm. would have a different diet if they weren't actually the person experiencing the, the feelings that they have from what they eat as in if they just sat and said like wrote a list of what they should eat every day for the rest of their life it would be quite different to what they've actually eaten which means they've always been driven by their feelings like if you think about it and so you just run around life kind of being distracted by the momentary feelings and and it's yeah it's quite a cool concept when you think about that and if you can really nail meditation then you can start to become like in control of everything you do a lot more
1: fully agree yeah i mean our basic urges we have each day are perfect for survival you know in the savannah as a hunter-gatherer but they don't make any sense anymore today in in many cases and so it's true that the point of the book is that you need to be able to control your feelings and if you are able to control and understand your basic urges and feelings you'll be able to select which ones you want to give Mm. into. Like it's definitely. okay once in a while to eat, uh, as they say in a book, a powdered sugar donut, you know, because yeah. it makes <laughs> you feel great and it's very tasty and it contains a lot of energy. But if you, every time you feel like eating one, eat one or six or, or 12, whatever, uh, yeah. it's not going to be very good for you. Um, yeah, and definitely. so be able to to realize that the urge is is actually an illusion because eating these donuts is not very good for you, is what will it be able to... To make you, you know, happier, healthier, and more satisfied in life in general. So that's that's the the main concept that I took away from the book, which I found very very interesting. And I think if if I'm if if I would sit down and think about every single one of my urges, I'd I'd really realize that many of them don't make a lot of sense. And and I think this concept might explain a lot of the weird stuff that people do.
0: Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. Sort of the root of most things, really. So he talks about where he gets angry sometimes and like that's another sort of feeling that people often get overrided by and they sort of forget about in the moment what they should be doing and they just sort of follow their feelings and do silly things or or they just spend time being angry when they don't need to like he was on a meditation camp and he was just hearing this really annoying saw noise and like it was just annoying the hell out of him to the point where he kind of realized actually the saw noise is just a thing that exists and like it's up to him on how he perceives it and he can kind of just like listen to it and like and enjoy it and just be chilled about it because he's never going to be able to do anything about it. Or he can just sit there and be angry at it the whole time. And it's like he's going out to annoy himself by like perceiving anger and this thing that like it's just a thing. Um, and that's not necessarily, it's, it's quite a hard one to grasp. But I remember when I was on my meditation camp that some of my own things started to make sense from like stories that I had. So I think a good example was I had a friend who. Me and him were staying with a different friend in Malaysia, and he was like, "It was really nice. He had this new kitchen, and he just like he just let us do whatever the hell we wanted in the in the in his house. Really like we're cooking and stuff. He even let us use his car and things. But anyway, one night he came to um take us to the movies, and we'd been like making these like dried beans into like bean burger things, which is taking forever to boil. Anyway, we went to the movies, and we came back, and we we had forgotten to turn it off, and so like it had like boiled over, and like it gone like this pooch like disgusting smelling like weird tar liquid it's just like burnt into his new kitchen and then gone down the sides of the things and oh it was the worst smell ever and and we we kind of ruined his new kitchen and he didn't get angry at all and we we're like what the fuck is there something wrong with bob is this guy like retired or something he was just like oh guys i gotta to go to bed now mate i've gotta get up early tomorrow and he just went to bed and then like we we stressed out we like we did everything we could to clean it. And then like, we bought him like a new blender and stuff. Cause he was trying to make protein shakes and things at the time. And then he came back the next day and like, we basically had fixed it, even though it took us a shitload of effort. And like, he just had like a nice time cause he had a new blender and everything was fine. Whereas like, I'd been staying with my sister the month before that, who was just making me feel so shit the whole time I was in her kitchen. Cause sometimes I'd leave like a dirty mark somewhere. Like I knew she would have gone ballistic and like, it would have like hurt our relationship massively. And like, that's kind of what I was expecting Bob would have done. But if he'd got angry, He'd have just like lost us as friends. We'd have all had a really awkward time and he'd probably have had to leave the house and he'd have had a shit day because he'd have spent the whole night getting angry. He wouldn't have had like a good time at work. He wouldn't have got like a free blender. He wouldn't have these friends anymore. So he'd have just made his life shitter by getting angry at us. Instead, he just chose to not bother with that whole thing that like a normal person would feel and just chose happiness. And it's like, holy shit. Half the time when I'm getting angry, I'm just like making my life so much worse myself. Like it was my choice to get angry on things. And like mm-hmm. but that was something that i'd experienced but hadn't even understood at the time and i just thought bob was retarded when it happened <laughs> and now i'm like oh my god bob is a genius like <laughs> how did he do that that's like mental gymnastics that he just sort of went like yeah all this shit i could go through i'm not going to bother with that i'm just going to like go for the easy thing which is really hard but like is much mm-hmm. nicer mm-hmm. and yeah, so exactly.
1: i think yeah yeah perfect example and a really good story i mean yeah his, his, probably his first urge was to get angry at you guys, which uh, yeah, I think everyone can understand. But he chose not to give in to that urge, not to give in to that feeling and just take the rational approach. Yeah. It's a really good story. Yeah, Bob seems like a very smart guy. And very considerate.
0: Definitely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: uh, Wizard. It'd be a different story if you came here and did the same thing.
0: Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Can imagine.
1: Uh, all right, Sam, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to need your help with the next concept because I'm going to try... And talk about the non-self or not-self concept. Okay. <laughs> All right. Really? So the non-self principle, as far as I understood, comes down to this, that we are actually not in charge of what we do. So your conscious mind, the, the one you think of as I, the voice in your head that speaks is actually mm. not in charge of, of many of the things that you do.
0: Yeah. I mean, that kind of relates into sort of the elephant in the brain, like lying to yourself about why you're doing things and Absolutely. stuff instead of explaining Absolutely. things sensibly. But oh, I don't know, I've got some. Is this kind of also relates to like, where does the self end and where do other things begin kind of thing? Like, is the self like the boundaries of your skin? Like, is your foot part of yourself or is it like just your consciousness, which isn't like technically like a fabrical part of you? Or can other parts, things in your environment be part of yourself? and, this is where it all gets so confusing.
1: Because um, mm-hmm. it, it actually, if I understand well, like this the, like this glass of water is as much part of myself as a hand holding it, right? Yeah. That's, yeah that's, exactly. that's one of the things that the book argues. Like it's, it's everything is part of you, but actually nothing is part of, of yourself.
0: Yeah, yeah. And you're like, wait, who, what? And if you, it sort of then relates to the thing about saying it in that if you can kind of be like the the sort of the controlling you that's sort of just like holding like the sort of the controller for what you do then Mm -hmm. like the body that is you on earth right now it's just like the medium by which your consciousness interacts with the rest of the planet and it's just like a useful tool for you to like do stuff with and it's where like your senses gauge information of the rest of the planet but it's not actually you exactly and that's quite kind of interesting and sort of empowering if you can hold on to that um Mm -hmm. but the whole whether you exist exactly is kind of strange or how you exist and maybe i need to do some more meditation camps to to grasp this better i don't know it's uh
1: honestly reading about
0: this thing certainly helps it a lot more
1: yeah it's true it
0: makes more sense as you're reading it but then trying to explain it you're like oh i just sound really retarded now (laughs) oh no
1: yeah no, it's, it's true. I mean, for me, half, well, let's say 40% of this book was enlightening and I fully understood and I also fully agreed with it. And the rest of the book was talking about concepts that I knew were true, that I was completely open for, but that yeah. I, I didn't manage to fully grasp them. And so that's for me one of the reasons why I definitely have to reread this book after I've had some experience with meditation. Mm. So I can, I can start understanding them better.
0: So I think it's, it also relates to like, it's not that you're like this one person that's sort of always thinking logically. It's that like there's multiple parts of you. So it's like algorithms in your brain that just sort of go into operation depending on what sort of just triggered them and stuff. And so you kind of have like the angry algorithm, but you also have like the, oh, I have the horny algorithm and like the other things that sort of go on and, and affect how you feel and what you do.
1: Yeah, that's true. This brings us to the next point in the book, which is our brain is modular which is also a point that was made in The Elephant in the Brain, which for me I found super, super interesting. And so it explains that you have modules for sex, you have modules for popularity, you have modules for enjoyment of of certain things. And these modules are actually the ones that are are deciding or driving your actions with regards to these these subjects. Mm. And we are not so much in control of our modules as as we'd like to think we are.
0: Yeah, they... It's in like they can sort of jump into like the controlling seat of your brain without you really controlling which one's in control kind of thing. Same way like, you know, if you're trying to work, but then suddenly like the, oh you need to eat module comes into play and you're like, Oh, you're just distracted from your work and you don't actually do what you're supposed to be doing kind of thing.
2: Mm-hmm. It's
0: sort of like a very easy example to understand, whereas like you don't really realise so much when you're just going about your day that actually it's constantly just different modules jumping in. And mm-hmm. um, but that's that's kind of why the meditation is so useful because you sit and you try and just concentrate on the breath. And so obviously the module should be like concentrating on just the one thing, but then it's constantly, you just observe like, Oh, why is my horny module coming on? Or why is my like eating module? or why am I thinking about like this person who did the wrong thing to me? And why am I thinking about beer with my friends? And so you just see all these different things trying to jump in and take control. And you just see like what a weird scrambled mess your brain is and why it's doing all these things. And that's sort of where you get like, as in, I really like in general, the, the author, of this book because he doesn't try and pretend to be good at meditating he more kind of comes from the point from the point of like oh i'm really bad at meditating it's not what i expected it's more just how retarded i am and he mm-hmm. also sort of acknowledges that like he wouldn't have thought meditation was for him because he's quite like an angry person and neurotic and <laughs> and he sort of explains how like it sort of makes sense for a, a lot more people than they think it would to mm-hmm. sort of actually be able to observe things like all these weird modules that's actually going on in their brain which most people sort of never quite realize they just let them sort of take over the whole time Anyway, so we started to go off on a bit of a tangent. So coming back to just the modules. Um, yeah, what, what do you think is the most useful thing to explain for you from them?
1: So I just wanted to come back to the fact that he, like, he makes the, so one, he's, he says, like, he's probably the worst person to be meditating because of indeed how he is. Also the fact that he has ADD and so has a very difficult time meditating. And so I just wanted to add that I really, like, I've, been laughing out loud by listening to the book, you know, Mm. because he's, he's funny and he like, he's easily self-criticizes. And so I really enjoyed the way he spoke about himself. So that's one point I want to make. And that, I think for me, the most interesting point in the modules part of the book is where he talks about uh, why it's so easy for people to become uh, addicted. And so I think that the example you gave uh, where you're working on something and then your eating module starts like creeping up and you're like, "Mm, I feel like eating something. What happens then is there's like almost a fight between your, I have to work module and I want to eat or I have to eat something module. And the thing is that when you get up, you stop working, you go eat, you eat something sugary. What's going to happen if you eat something sugary, you'll get a nice feelings. You'll get some dopamine and some endorphins that get released in your brain. And so if you continue working, the chances that you'll get like this spike of dopamine are way lower than if you if you eat something something sweet and so what's going to happen next time is like you're going to be sitting you're going to be working and suddenly your eating module is going to come up and it's going to say okay i want to eat something because i'm hungry Um, and your body is going to be like okay this has happened before and one of the two actions resulted in a dopamine injection so i'm going to make sure that that module gets the upper hand in in the contest for okay what's going to dominate my behavior and that is for me the main cause of addiction and why it's so hard to solve
0: mm, for people. Yeah. So, as in, like addiction behaviors are just very self reinforcing because they're constantly rewarding. And so, it, it, you can kind of get addicted to things literally within like the first few times. It's sort of it's already come on board. as like the thing that mm-hmm. you should just go and do quite sensibly before you realize it's really an addiction as such. And um, non addictive behaviors are inherently not addictive so (laughs) there's nothing reinforcing about them it's just sort of at any point in time it's quite easy to get into an addictive behavior (laughs) Mm
2: -hmm.
1: yeah and 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 one of the things that i realized is that i mean today like science has found ways to cheat our reward mechanisms Mm. so which is why you know heroin addicts the worst thing you can do is take your first shot of heroin because that shot Mm -hmm. is going to give you an immense pleasure that you can't imagine I've never experienced yeah. it, but I, that's, that's what I hear.
0: Yeah, um, I still kind of want to a little bit, <laughs> just, just to know. Yeah,
1: just to know. But then yeah. if, if you listen to the book, you're like, holy shit. Because once I do that, mm. my body's going to be like, holy crap, I don't want anything else except for that. And nothing can probably beat that feeling. Yeah, and, yeah. And that's, I think, why it's so it's difficult to, to stop being addicted to these types of things. Which brings me to my next point, and it is that... Um, I think being able to control your urges and your feelings and and the modules that strive for these dopamine and endorphins in your brain is getting by the day more important to be able to lead a a happy, fulfilling life because companies are getting better and better at designing foods that maximize the good feeling you get in your head are designing uh, games or, or, or social media applications that maximize the, with dopamine injection you get when you swipe or get a like or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Companies are getting so good at it that at some point it's, it's going to be very tough to, to, to ignore these urges, mm. which is why I fully believe that um, meditation is going to be one of the most important skills a person can have in the, in the coming. Yeah,
0: definitely. It's sort of the whole mind control thing is sort of like the answer to like all the problems that are coming up. And I read, um, distracting ourselves amusing ourselves to death which is all about like how distracting the world is becoming and we're not even sort of being able to focus on things that make us happy and, and then there's also like deep work like how newport which is all that like in our economy it's sort of actually being able to sit down and just concentrate and focus on one thing and sort of be able to have a good output is like the most valuable thing but it's like the increasingly harder thing to do and with social media and like, everything your phone does or and and marketing, like you said, but like foods, and people used to just have three meals a day and that was it. But then suddenly, you know, there's all these like snack companies that are sort of advertising and selling you that you want this other thing and that it's like healthy to eat. Like, even healthy snacks, like, it's still a snack. You don't even need a snack. Like, but they're advertising themselves as healthy. Like, you don't get healthier by eating more. You get healthier by eating less and exercising. But I can't sell you that in an advert. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I won't make money. So mm-hmm. I can, like, I'm going to become a company. I can make money by selling you something you don't need. And, yeah it's just the world isn't really optimized for you being the optimal you so you kind of need to like control your brain to ignore all the stuff that's coming at you Mm -hmm. which is hard Mm -hmm. um
1: i i learned that doritos the company the chips company they i think invested 15 million into making the perfect dorito taste, texture etc yeah honestly for me when i opened a bag of dorito chips and I eat my first one, I won't stop until it's gone. Like it's empty.
0: Like I can't
1: stop myself. And and I mean, how can I, you know, a poor soul, which likes crispy, salty food, can say no to something that's been designed and $50 million have gone into the the designing of the perfect chip. Yeah. I mean, that's why I just avoid buying them. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Or like
0: Facebook, they've had like, billions spent on like optimizing it and they also have billions of users which they've tested on to optimize the behavior to just like get it in your brain so that like Mm -hmm. you want to post things and you want people to like liken it and then it's just addictive to keep on going back and like Mm -hmm. you go there just because you want to make one thing but it'll instantly distract you so you spend half an hour because if they make money if you spend time in the app and like it's just it just takes over your brain instantly Mm -hmm. or whether it's Mm -hmm. instagram or whatever you're using it's not designed for you to have like the best life. It's designed to just keep you on the app, mm-hmm. and like that's not actually the best use thing for you. Nope. Yes, yeah, mad. Fully agree. Cool. But uh, I mean,
1: I think that's probably the most profound insight I got. Well, I, I I find is is something that people should know and realize. And people probably know because I know, but <laughs> mm, I still haven't pretty. started meditating. So yeah, uh, yeah. I'm not, I'm not very close to solving it for me personally. But then, the, uh, so you can still like play retreat, games
0: with yourself. In terms of accepting your behaviours, like acknowledging when it's like, oh, I've got an urge to eat, I cannot eat, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Or as in, I think it's a dual way of doing it. One is mind control in the moment, which is much harder than environment control. So, like, mm-hmm. like I said, like as in eating snacks. If I'm at home, I find it really hard. If I just don't pack any snacks and I go out for the day and I work in a coffee shop, I don't even need to eat lunch. I can just like not eat the whole day. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you're like, well, I can sit there and not eat for a whole day mm-hmm. very easily if there's just no food around and I don't mm-hmm. even like bother because I want to carry on working but I can't do it at home but I can just make myself go and sit in the coffee shop like literally like a hundred yards away from my house and not eat for a whole day if I don't want to be eating it's, it's like it's so easy to just change where I am a little bit and then it just make it hard for me to go and like do the thing that I don't want to be doing but I would do if I had the option and mm-hmm. so it's sort of thinking a little bit more analytically okay how do I work and like accepting where you probably would fail and just doing something ahead of time to just change your environment as well is often easier than trying to just constantly exhibit mind control the whole time.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, absolutely. All right. No, I think uh, that concept was uh, very interesting. And then I'd like to to touch on one more last final concept, which is the concept of, of essence. So for me, the concept of essence is, is the fact that every single one of us judges everything in their life in a certain way. And that way is usually either positive or negative, which again brings us back to the, uh, I need to either approach something which is good for me or avoid something which is bad for me. For example, my phone. I see it as a good thing because it, it gives me entertainment. It gives me contact with other people. And so for me, I've put an essence to this computer. And so the thing is that the book argues that we attach an essence to everything but these essences are not inherent to the object itself. So the feelings I have of my uh, phone are different than the feelings you have over my phone Mm. because you probably don't care that much about my phone. Like it's because it's my phone. And so my feelings of my phone are actually what I project on this physical object. And so it is not the essence of the object itself, but the essence um, the essence that I perceive is what I, I attach to this object, and it's, it's pretty much the same. For example, rotting flesh. Rotting flesh, as good as every human will be uh, disgusted by rotting flesh because it's it's bad, it's dirty, and it's normal that we like we've been taught if something's rotting and smelly, we need to avoid it. However, mm. bacteria, for example, they love rotting flesh. So in itself, rotting flesh is not good or bad. Like we perceive it as bad, and bacteria perceive it as good. Um, yeah. And so I think that's the point of the essence story or the essence concept of, um, of Buddhism is that nothing has a fundamental essence. Everything is uh, perceived in a certain way. Uh, the example you gave earlier was about the chainsaw. The chainsaw in itself is just a machine. It's just a tool. And the sound that it makes is not good or bad. Almost everyone perceives it as bad and annoying. But again, you have the choice of how you perceive the essence of such a sound or such an object. Yeah, yeah. And I think that is is a very profound uh, concept in Buddhism. Mm. I think the concept of this book and, and Buddhism as a whole just wants you to have control over how you perceive things. Because you don't have to perceive everything as good. Or, or you don't have to start perceiving everything as bad or some things that has, as bad or good. It's just that you understand that your perception is driven by feelings and is driven by natural selection. And the moment you have some control over this, um, it just makes you more happy um, and more satisfied in life. And I think that's all that Buddhism wants. Um, yeah, yeah. that's you, you giving you like, control.
0: When you finish, sure, maybe you won't be like completely zen the whole time, but if you may have got pissed off by something and then it ruined like the whole 24 hours afterwards. If it goes down to like 22, that's like two less hours you spend in a bad state kind of thing. That's like mm-hmm. still a win
2: mm-hmm.
0: and it might necessarily not all come at once, but if it just like helps you get there like a little bit faster and things, and ultimately your life is something that you want to try and enjoy as much as possible and spend in the state that you enjoy being, mm-hmm. you want to kind of optimize for that wherever possible. And so yeah, if you can just see what's going on in your brain and think about the bad feelings that you're feeling and realize that they maybe probably aren't helping you at all, mm-hmm. then that's useful. But it, it like can that. be quite hard, and it? it can come across a bit harsh. If us say someone's just lost someone, and you're like, "Ah, well, actually, they just want you to be happy. Stop grieving because of you're just wasting your time being sad. Mm-hmm. Like they wouldn't even want you to be sad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and like, isn't it glorious that you like even had this person in your life that was so meaningful to you?" You can be so happy for that, and they might be like a bit like, "Oh, I stopped being a dick." Um, but actually, it's a really powerful thing if you can take it only if you can actually believe that, because then you don't really get sad when people die. You just sort of appreciate everything that was so lucky that you had. Mm-hmm. If you think about it, like if you're given the choice before you met them, oh, can you have this amazing person in your life? It'll make you happy that they're going to die after like two years of knowing them, but like you'll have had this very great thing. You'd be like, "Yes, I'll take that." But mm-hmm. because you kind of have it, the, the reverse option, you get like the good thing, and then you then it gets taken away. You sort of. You feel like you've lost something and like mm-hmm. you've been wronged or something. And so it makes you feel very negative and down and it's much more like despairing. And then there's the whole, like your brain is optimized to perceive bad things, like five times more than it perceives good things. So like, let's say one bad thing happens in your relationship, you need to do five good things to kind of counteract it kind of thing. And like in the news or whatever, it's always like the bad stuff is much more important to you than the good stuff. And it's sort of, it's realizing that your brain does that and wanting to be like, actually, I want to give as much thought to the good as I do to the bad and like have an equal weighting, and actually sort of appreciate what's going on in your life Mm -hmm. much more level-headedly rather than just sort of letting your neurotic evolution-focused sort of, I only only want to see bad stuff and sort of optimize for that problem Mm -hmm. and try and stop it and these things. It's, yeah, useful.
1: Yeah. All right. I think... um... We've talked about the book enough.
0: Do some reviews. I mean, rating wise, I think I'd probably say nine out of ten, mainly just because the title's annoying and I can't <laughs> get other people to read it that easily.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Otherwise, oh, maybe it should be ten. In terms of like reading some again, just the amount of like aha moments and like, oh my god, this is totally what I needed to read, and like it was perfect in that sense. So maybe it's ten. Mm-hmm. Nine and a half. Uh, and how much did you enjoy reading it? Yeah, I really enjoyed reading it. I think um, because there are some meditation things that are like just a little bit too airy fairy. And he talks about the airy fairy concepts, but in a way that like makes you realize that he found the Mary fairy, like the whole like non self and things. And I was like, wow, Mm. this just blows your brain. Like, what I didn't even get what was going on. But because he comes from someone that's like probably less open to meditation than I was, even it's sort of he kind of makes it very accessible. And he's just quite a funny writer. Mm -hmm. So it's really enjoyable to read. Instead of like, kind of, just I don't feel stupid when I read this book. I feel kind of more like he's on my side rather than someone kind of teaching me and me being like, "Oh God, I wish I knew what was going on, but I don't." It's definitely mm-hmm. it's written in a really good way. So yeah, mm-hmm. it was enjoyable.
1: Mm-hmm. That's true. And then, how uh, useful is it for you in your life?
0: Yeah, it's very use. I guess it's as useful as you make it. As in, it really helped. Understand a lot of what had happened to me on the Vipassana and made me better at doing these things, but equally, I think you do need to do more meditation or thinking analytically about what is in your environment and how you behave with it. And so, you could read it and get nothing out of it if you just sort of went, "Oh yeah, that's cool, I get it," and then just didn't do anything. You just went back to your algorithms. So it's kind of it is like he uses the concept of the Matrix. It's like he does kind of show you that you're in the Matrix and that there is like a real world outside of it that you could be in. And you can't constantly be in the other real world. You sort of, you do go back into your head and you do follow around what it is you're doing. So it kind of, it shows you that you can get there and you just need to spend more time going to reality and thinking a bit more analytically. analytically. And it depends on how interested you are in doing that and how much time you actually put into into it as to how much you get out of it, I guess. So it's not not like everyone would always get lots out of it for sure. Um, But I certainly got a lot of it. I guess. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what about you for all those same questions?
1: So, so for me, interesting, wise, because it's difficult because some part I found like groundbreaking life changing. So some of them are amazing. And I feel like I'm not wise enough. I think I'd call it to grasp many of the other points that were made. So I probably give it an eight. Well, it probably deserves a 10 and it's just me. Yeah, and that is it's interesting.
0: Limited. It's like, he could have just not put those harder things in. And mm-hmm. it would have been quite digestible and very easy, but it's it's nice that he did.
1: And it Lovely. sort of gives
0: yeah. you the possibility to go back and like learn mm-hmm. some more and then actually get those things as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so it sort of shows yeah. you what's there. And it certainly would be really like, because I kind of went into Vipassana as super naive. I just met people that had done Vipassana and been like, holy shit, I wish I was like that. I didn't really understand any of the concepts within it. And so I was just... Whereas like reading this, if I'd read this before I went in, I think I'd have had a lot more useful stuff in my brain to actually then like go and view things and sort of see and make sense of my own history about it. Yeah,
1: I fully agree. So yeah, I, I found some of the parts less interesting because I didn't understand them, but it gives me a reason to reread the book after mm-hmm. I have a first meditation experience. So, I mean, maybe I should give it more points. Let's, let, let's say I give it a nine entertainment wise like how much did i enjoy reading the book probably also because of the same reasons give it let's say an eight out of ten because some yeah. of the parts i just I, I just didn't grasp and so i that's why i didn't enjoy it and finally how useful it is so for the reader uh, for the listeners we've just decided to go on a retreat together which is going to be my first retreat and sam's second Rich? yeah i've always thought i wanted to do a retreat but now i'm actually going to be planning one so i mean if, if if that's what it takes for me to start meditating it's going to be uh it should be a 10 out of 10 as far as usability in my life and, and impact
0: yeah yeah if, if it has like a good effect on you doing it then yeah it would yeah. be super huge if you hate the whole experience then maybe not so useful but if it allows you to go and do it and then you realize you didn't like it i guess that's still useful because you found something out
1: yeah but, but i highly sure. doubt i won't like it i mean it's going to yeah, be yeah
0: yeah i think it would be super awesome but yeah
1: Okay. So I think that th- that's it for this episode. I uh, hope you enjoyed it. Uh, next time, next week, we'll de- we will discuss a book on feminism. It's called Invisible Women. I've already started it. I really, really like it. It's changing my view on many things. And so I'm looking very much forward to it. Cheers.
2: Me too.